there's a misperception that we used to live the law of consecration, now we don't. The better way to think about it is that we have a law of consecration and it's taken different forms in different times. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about chapter 24 of Saints Volume 2, An Immense Labor. We're excited to welcome on the show today, Keith Erickson, who's the director of the Church History Library. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Well, to start out this episode, in the chapter we read about cooperative stores, Keith, can you tell us more about this cooperative movement among the saints? Why is this happening and what are the results? Yeah, this is an interesting moment in the saints' economic history where they experiment with different economic practices that really focus on their internal economy. I think one of the most important things to think about as we try to put the cooperative movement in perspective is to think about the larger doctrinal history of the church and its position on these kinds of questions. We talk about the law of consecration There are many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about these important principles, and that's a law that the saints have followed throughout our history, including to today. We make covenants in temples, and we continue to believe these practices. There's a misperception that we used to live the law of consecration, now we don't. The better way to think about it is that we have a law of consecration, and it's taken different forms in different times. And so early in the church's history, there was a moment called the United Order, the way that people think about it. As we've gone back in the Joseph Smith papers and uncovered the original records, it was originally talked about as a United firm, and it was an economic arrangement to accomplish publishing and buying property in some of the ways that the church needed to act. And so the cooperative movement is a next step, and it's meant for a different period in time. Now the saints are in the territory, and they are trying to respond to a couple of fears. One of them is a fear from the outside, outsider influence. The railroad is about to be completed, and so there's a fear people may become too desirous for outside goods. There's a second fear that's operating internally, and that's that some people in the community could reap huge profits at the expense of others. And so the cooperative movement becomes a way to address those fears at this particular time in the church's history by pooling resources, urging local manufacture of goods, selling through local stores, and then encouraging the saints to patronize those stores. It was interesting to me as I read because even up into my childhood, there were ZCMI department stores, and that was one of the largest at this time. It was the Zions Cooperative Mercantile Institution, and so it was neat for me to learn some context about that. That's right. We often think history happened a long time ago, but it influences us all the way up to the present. So in these stores, it was also fascinating to learn that these establishments would use the phrase holiness to the Lord, and it would be inscribed on a plaque or some sort of sign on the outside of the store to let people know this is one of the saint stores that you should shop in. How prevalent was that, and how many of these kinds of stores were there? Well, this definitely grew throughout these middle decades of the 19th century. And yeah, there was a visible symbol, a sort of shop here, The flip side of this is there was a don't shop there message implied, and so that caused tensions within the community. But ultimately, these kinds of stores, there became more than 100 throughout the settlement. 
in the local manufacturer side, different communities would manufacture different things. One would focus on silk and one would focus on agriculture. Then they would uh, combine those into some manufacturing. And so there was specialization among the communities, but that was brought together through this system of the distribution and sales. Tell us a little bit about the Relief Society stores. We learn that there are Relief Society stores, and they kind of even pattern the physical buildings after Joseph Smith's brick store in Nauvoo. When did this start, and how does that relate to these cooperative stores? That's a fun part of this story because we often, as historians, have to look hard to find women in the records, in history. This is a moment where women's participation in the economy surfaces, and it becomes really central to the story. We see them advocating for it, using the Relief Society networks to work together and create the stores. But then outside of the stores, women are also involved. They are producing materials. They hold stock in the stores. They purchase. And so this gives us a little window into the this really significant influence of women on the economy in the territory. One thing that I found fascinating in this chapter also was Sarah Kimball. Now, our listeners will remember Sarah Kimball was involved in the creation of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo. She's sort of well-to-do and a very well-known Latter-day Saint woman. Her group, her Relief Society, wants to build a store, and they're offered free property upon which to build their store. What happens, Keith? Well, they turn it down. They say, we're going to do this all ourselves. I, I just love that. I love that. She's like, look, thank you very much. We've got this. And I just appreciate that that was sort of her take on things, that this is our organization, we can do this, and they bought the property and they built the store. Like you say, there were so many of these stores all around. And in fact, there still are. There are still some of the buildings still standing in various communities throughout the Intermountain West. I also loved this image of when they lay the cornerstone. They have a ceremonial mallet and a silver trowel. And then she stands on the stone and she's just explaining the object of the building. And she says it's to enable women to more perfectly combine their labors. But she goes on to say not only their labors, but their means, their tastes, their talents for improvement physically, socially, morally, intellectually, spiritually, and financially for more extended usefulness. And I just think that's so great that she is including all of these things and showing them that, you know, in some ways you might not feel useful. That might not be your talent. But when we combine... It's all of these things and it can just grow. It's amazing. There's a quote from the book that I'd like us to listen to. With woman to aid in the great cause of reform, what wonderful changes can be effected, it read. Give her responsibility and she will prove that she is capable of great things. Another part of this chapter that I found fascinating was the visit of Joseph F. Smith's cousins, who come to town representing the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Keith, can you tell us about what was their purpose in coming to visit, and what was Joseph F. Smith's reaction to this visit? He'd met Joseph Smith III before, and we know what happened in previous chapter, but what's happening with this visit? By this point in the story, the two churches are established geographically, and they are trying to shore up their membership and who they are and what they believe. And in that, both sides see in the other church that there are friends and family members, people they used to know and love, who are in the other camp. And so both sides are interested in reaching out 
and from each perspective to rescue their long lost friend or family member who's in the other organization. And so David and Alexander come to Salt Lake City with the goal of teaching Latter-day Saints the truth about their own history and inviting them to be back with the reorganized saints. And that's the perspective they bring. The perspective they meet is a defiant Joseph F. Smith who says, you're not taking people from our flock. And so that is a family issue, but it's also a church institutional conflict. One of the conflicts that they're talking about is the issue of plural marriage. Of course, the saints in the Utah Territory are openly practicing plural marriage and have been for some time at this point. But it all goes back to Nauvoo and the original plural marriages that happened there that were not public. And Joseph F. Smith, it was fascinating to me, he's collecting these affidavits. Why is he collecting affidavits and what do the affidavits say? Yeah, this is one of the places where history gets complicated. And I often remind people that the past is gone. And it's not like a science experiment where you can go and examine the same thing that another scientist looked at. In this case, Joseph F. and his cousins are trying to figure out a past, the 1840s in Nauvoo, which is gone. People who live there, some of the people are dead, including Joseph and Hiram. The moment has passed. The context has changed. And so they've got to use the best tools that they have to figure out what happened. Now, this is particularly complicated because in Nauvoo in the 1840s, Joseph and Hiram and others were not very open about the practice of what they call celestial marriage or plural marriage, and others have called uh, polygamy. And so how do you, several decades later, document something that was secret or wasn't very talked about? That's the challenge that Joseph F. Smith faces. And so he goes everywhere he can. He looks at the revelations. He looks in what we might consider traditional historical records. He reads William Clayton's journal. Clayton was uh, close with the prophet and is really probably the most explicit source about the practice of plural marriage in Nauvoo. We might add here that the church history department is preparing an edited version of the Clayton journals, the same style of editing used with the Joseph Smith papers. Portions of those journals have been published in appendices in the Joseph Smith papers, but the whole journals are also being prepared in that same documentary editing style. But this is the historical source that Joseph F. turns to. He also turns to the people around him, people who were alive in Nauvoo, and in particular, people who were married to Joseph Smith or sealed or uh, for either time or for eternity. And he goes after these living people in search of affidavits of their experience. And many go on record at this time to affirm their relationship with Joseph Smith. These affidavits are some of the earliest records. Because the records are so few in the Nauvoo era, these affidavits that start to be gathered become the earliest records that we have of plural marriage. I'm sure it was really confusing, honestly, to both parties. On one hand, you have Joseph F. Smith, who his own sister, Levina, as we learn in the chapter, had lived with Emma, and she testified that Emma had told her that she consented to and witnessed Joseph Smith's marriages to other plural wives. And on the other hand, you have Joseph Smith III and Alexander and David, who were saying, well, my mom never told me that. And that's just a recipe for confusion. Welcome to history. This is what we do every day, trying to make sense of the past. 
I appreciated what you said about how Joseph F. Smith tried to solve this problem. He went to all the sources he could. He did his due diligence. He looked at everything he could find, talked to the best people, the smartest people that he could find who were experts, in fact, because they were there. And then he made up his mind about what he believed had happened. Um, I think there's a lesson there to learn for all of us today. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is an example of what to do when the information is incomplete. And we experience that in the 21st century. Information floats around on the internet, even in the in traditional media outlets, there's uncertainty about what's actually going on. And instead of just passing it on or reacting emotionally, Joseph F. took the challenge to go and try and pin down what he could. Sometimes you can't pin down every fact. That's how history works. But we have to do our best. And he did the best that he could do at this time in history. And especially in cases of historical questions, something that's been helpful for me is to better understand the context as much as possible. And I think that's what Saints has helped me do as well, is to just kind of understand what they were going through. I mean, something helpful that Joseph F. Smith mentioned is he said, the brethren were not as free as they are here, you know, speaking of the brethren Nauvoo. And he said, the devil was raging about Nauvoo, and there were traitors on every hand. And so it's not to like excuse necessarily anybody's behavior, but to understand that climate that was happening in Nauvoo. And that maybe gives us a greater understanding about why they did what they did. Yeah, Joseph F. is a good example. Anytime we're dealing with historical questions, you want to read carefully and you want to read widely. Don't just stop with one source or, or one book. And Joseph F. does that. He goes as wide as he possibly can, and he looks at the evidence as carefully as he can. Well, we meet another character, Keith, in this chapter, a man by the name of William Godby. He is, at this point, publicly supporting the church and Brigham Young, but privately, he's not so happy. What are the issues that he's experiencing that cause him to have some feelings against the church? Well, William Godby is in an interesting position. He has a political role. He's on the Salt Lake City Council. He has a, an ecclesiastical role. He's a member of his local bishop, Rick. And then he's a son-in-law of Brigham Young. Brigham had lots of sons-in-law. So in that unique mix of family and church and politics, add to that the fact that he was a successful businessman. And uh, he had made a lot of money. He was doing well. He had founded a magazine, so he has a kind of uh, now media tie-in. And so all of those things combine as he sees the cooperative movement begin and what its aims are. He reads the writing on the wall, and for him the writing is, this is going to cut into my bottom line. And that becomes the prompt for him to oppose the movement and then ultimately to oppose Brigham Young. What are some things that he does, I mean, both privately and publicly, to oppose the church? So publicly, he starts out really uh, supporting the church. His magazine is defending the church against the reorganized Smiths and their message. But privately, they're showing great concern for the cooperative movement and what that would mean. And so behind the scenes, ultimately, they'll help to found a political party that would oppose church influence. The newspaper will eventually grow and become a counterpoint to the church's publishing efforts. 
And then in the religious sphere, William Godby begins to practice what's uh, eventually known as spiritualism and to help participate in seances and efforts to communicate with the deceased. And in those experiences, he believes that he speaks with Joseph Smith and Heber C. Kimball, Peter, James, and John, even Jesus Christ. And so that becomes the place from which he gets his charge that he feels to go and correct Brigham Young and the course the church is taking. A takeaway lesson for me for today is that it really underscores that you need to understand how revelation works. Not just that there is revelation or that you can, but there are ways that the Holy Ghost communicates and there are ways that it doesn't. And there are ways that you can check and know and confirm this is from the Lord and this isn't. And so I think that in some ways is a timeless lesson. We're seeing a certain version of it, but it's part of being part of a church that believes in revelation, which is a wonderful thing. With that uh, belief comes the responsibility to know how revelation works. This conflict comes to a head in a church disciplinary action against William Godby. He is excommunicated. It's in a, a public meeting. And one of the things that Godby and his associates say is that church leaders act as if they're infallible. Brigham Young had as an answer for that. And let's listen to a quote here from the book about what Brigham Young said about prophets being infallible. Brigham also rejected the idea that church leaders could not make mistakes. Man having the priesthood may be fallible, he declared. I do not pretend to be infallible. But his fallibility did not mean God could not work through him for the good of the saints. Yeah, that quote illustrates a really important principle, and that is that prophets are people. Joseph was the first person to tell people that he made mistakes. He published those in the revelations, mistakes that he made, times when the Lord criticized him. It's, it's important to know that while they can make mistakes, that over all of that, there is an opportunity for the Lord to guide his work and to take care of the saints. Keith, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been great to talk about the cooperative movement and how Joseph F. Smith responded to visitors that came with uh, different ideas. And it'll be interesting for our listeners to learn more about William Godby and the movement which he founds in our next episode. So I'd invite you to join us again then. And we'd like to remind our listeners to follow along with the chapters and any topics that you'd like to learn more about. You can do that at Saints org, And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback and any comments that you have. You can email us at saints at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you so much for listening. 